0: One of the most uncomfortable and controversial teachings in Christianity is the doctrine of hell. Even though we might not like it, the Bible, and especially the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, talk a lot about hell. But it's a hard pill for many to swallow. The idea that a loving God will righteously judge the wicked for all eternity makes a lot of people squirm, including those who claim to be Bible-believing Christians. What parts of our understanding of hell do we get from Scripture? And what parts do we get from tradition? What will hell be like? How does the Bible describe it? Who goes to hell? And why? How could a God of love send anyone to hell? And has there been unanimous agreement in the history of the Christian church on all of these things? Welcome, 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 welcome to the Beards and Bible Podcast, a podcast where we talk Bible, beards, buddies, and beauty. I'm trying to think of other alliterative illiter- terms for, uh, the start with the letter B.
1: Babushkas. B- and
0: babushkas, the babushka <laughs> podcast. Uh, my name is Josh, I'm joined by my co-host Gabe. Gabe, how are you doing this morning?
1: I'm doing well, doing well. How about yourself? I'm good, man.
0: Got a cup of coffee and a head full of uh questions about our topic today. So mm. those things are always good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm down here in the basement, which is it adds a whole other level of uh of professionalism to this podcast. <laughs> but, and I'm in all in all seriousness, I'm turning <laughs> one of the rooms in our basement into a bit of a studio where I can record music or oh there you um, go podcasting. But I've got everything moved out. It was full of just, you know, the junk that you accumulate in life, like tubs of roller skates and clothes and stuff, hand-me-down clothes.
0: Wait, you've got tubs of roller skates? <laughs> like the entire tub is just filled up with roller skates? I have... <laughs> <laughs> I have.
1: <laughs> I have like a... You never
0: know you're going to need roller skates. I just got a big tub of roller skates in my basement, you know, just uh, for
1: skating. Yeah, I, 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 have to, block. I have a tub, you know, one of those big gray Sterilite tubs that I feel like every American has in their home somewhere. And in the tub, it is full of roller skates and inline skates. So funny story the other day, I find this tub because I'm emptying out what we call the junk room. It's just the room that I'm sitting in now. That's going to become the studio. So I'm emptying this out. I'm kind of moving stuff around and purging stuff. And I come across the tub of skates and uh, I open it up and I'm like, Oh, I don't think the boys have seen this in a long time. So I bring it upstairs and uh, you just... Can't describe three homeschool boys opening <laughs> the joy that opening a tub full of inline skates would elicit from three homeschool boys. So, yeah. in no short time, there was uh, a 13 year old on in the cul-de-sac uh, wearing wearing Stacy's high school rollerblades, rollerblading around with the biggest <laughs> the biggest grin on his face. It just it just made his week. Yeah, and He gave himself blisters from roller, from, from rollerblading.
0: Well, I was, I'm, I'm really happy to hear it's just blisters and you haven't had to go, you know, do any ER visits or mm-hmm. urgent care visits or anything like that. Cause when I think roller skates, I just think of pain, mm-hmm. but uh, that's just me. I was never the most coordinated, uh, my kids, we had a very interesting visitor, uh, Monday night we're outside and Jenny and I are sitting on the porch with the baby and the two oldest kids are out in the backyard swinging on a swing set we got out there for them. Mm. And I start hearing a mewing sound, uh, meow or me mew. What's the what's the past mm. tense of? Is it mew or meow? Like I heard a cat mewing. Is it, it heard it, a cat meowing it, or mewing?
1: It, it meowed.
0: Yeah, it yeah. made a noise. <laughs> and I'm like, what? What is that? And I looked at Jenny. I'm like, is, is that a cat? And so Aiden comes running across the yard. He's like, dad, there's a cat out here. And we look and there's this little kitty and it's probably like, I don't know, eight or 10 weeks old. And it's got like a scrape across its nose and it's got like a wound on its shoulder. And we're like, Oh my goodness. And so this little kitty like comes up to the kids and and of course they pick it up and bring it on the porch. And our neighbors have dogs that, um, we have to be really careful with our little dog. And so we're like, man, if, if the neighbor's dogs attack our little dog, if they see this cat, this cat is done for. Yeah. So we're like, all right, well, we'll bring it up on the porch and we'll give it some water and we'll give it some food and we'll, you know, just keep it here for tonight and hope its owners will claim it. So that's what we do. We put it all over Facebook. There's like a couple of missing pet groups in our community. And, and meanwhile, my kids get smitten with this little cat Mm
1: -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. and the next morning I wake up and I'm, I'm usually up before everybody else. and I'm sitting down in the living room and here comes both Aiden and Grace down the stairs. And first thing they do is go outside and play with this cat. And man, all day yesterday, Jenny told me the kids were outside playing with this cat. Mm -hmm. And, um, I came home from work and Jenny was like, this cat has the patience. Of a saint. <laughs> and she's like, what should we, should we call it something? What oh, is it just no. kitty? And, and I was like, "Uh." so she's like, I mean, he's got the patience of St. Francis. And I was like, well, that's interesting because St. Francis was the patron saint of animals.
1: Mm.
0: So we were like, well, let's call him St. Francis. And uh, we've told the kids, if the owner comes back, we got to give it back. But if not, we'll keep it. So we laid the kids down <laughs> to sleep last night and Jenny and I are sitting in the living room and I hear my five-year-old just like weeping, just like, I go up to his room and I'm like, buddy, what's going on? And he goes,
1: what are we going to do if
0: the owners come back and want to take the cat away? So um I think we're stuck with a cat.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, I mean, that's you're at the point now where even even if the owners come back, you just have to lie and hide the cat and keep it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's no cat here?
1: Meow. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Was that mewing? No, that was just me. That was my stomach. Yeah. Yeah, so apparently that's how most cats um, get adopted is, you know, it's not like you go to the pet store and buy one. They just come find you and are like, hey, I'm your cat now
1: yeah but as soon as you do adopt it the, the kids are gonna have no no uh concern for it whatsoever there's gonna be like over it yeah no. it's, like, it's how it goes we, we you know we have three cats in my house and yeah they're just like right now they're they're pretty much just you know it's like oh you're gonna take care of the cat right if we keep the cat yeah we will we will and then obviously no that doesn't work out that way so and it's just you yeah yeah it falls on stacy's shoulders a lot but yeah hmm. hey you're getting ready for a, a trip aren't you I am, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Actually, just I was uh, making some plans yesterday with uh, some some folks related to that trip. I'm going to Uganda pretty soon, and really excited about that. We're uh, I was on a conference call yesterday with uh, Tara, our missionary over there, and some other people from uh, Veritas College. It's looking like I'll be doing some pastor training over there teaching, teaching some pastors about, um, how to exegete scripture and, and do stuff like that. So I'm really excited about that. So, uh,
1: yeah, that's really important skill. Good job.
0: Yeah. yeah well, I hadn't done it yet. So don't tell me, don't tell me good job yet. Cause I haven't done it yet. So we'll see.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, going back to my empty basement room, Stacy just came in. She, she determined it was too echoey in here because I emptied it out. So you can't see, but there are piles of pillows and comforters all around this room where I'm sitting. <laughs> so if the my audio does not sound echoey, it's uh, due in part to Stacey dumping a bunch of pillows. So I can take a nap. And, yeah. Yeah.
0: You could just tell your family, oh, we're just going to do a long podcast today. It's going to be like a three-hour mm-hmm. Joe Rogan experience style podcast. Mm-hmm. And really, it's just you podcast for a little bit and then you just nap for the
1: rest of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Real professional.
0: Absolutely. Only the highest quality here at Beards and Bible Podcast. Mm-hmm. So, Gabe, the topic today is a pretty serious one, um, and that's the topic of the doctrine of hell and eternal judgment and different views related to that throughout the history of the Christian church, but um, I feel like this idea, this doctrine, this theology really got imprinted upon me at a very young age. And as a kid, I remember being terrified of this. Um, And I just thought, man, was this just like a thing in church in the 80s and 90s just to talk a lot about it to kids? I mean, do you you feel like, how, how old were you when you first heard about this? And what were the images you had in your mind when you were told about this?
1: I don't remember how old I was exactly, but yeah, I can remember sitting around a campfire with my dad and him saying, son, you see those coals in there or something, you know? And he'd be like, hell is 10 times hotter than this, you know? Oh man. And, and, but I remember, uh, I remember we used to have this company that would come in this, this theatrical, um, organization and
0: they would, they would, I know what you're about to say. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They would take people from within the church. And teach them different parts, and then you would go out and canvas the entire community and tell them and and give them these free tickets to come to this show, mm-hmm. and it was called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Yes, you know it was. That? Yeah, I yeah, do. It, I remember that? <laughs> and it was ter- yeah. it was terrifying. They would it was, like, yeah. they would snatch people out of the crowd, and like these demons would come out and drag people up onto the stage, and like put and they would be like screaming. And this young girl who died in the car accident is like crying and she's like, you know, burning in hell and this stuff. And it's like, you know, you, you like, that's the girl, like you had a crush on, you know? And she's like, yeah, yeah. you know, but it's just funny. Cause you're just, all these people from your church are the actors. Yeah. So the goal was to bring all the community in and have them see the contrast between heaven and hell and then share the gospel with them using that. Yeah. So, uh, it was interesting. Sometimes, you know, you'd have, um, like basically nobody from the community in the church and then just a few church members sprinkled throughout the actual, like on the pews and stuff. And then the bulk of the church doing this big production. Um, but yeah, that was <laughs> some of the first, some of the first things I, yeah, I, I picture about hell it was like, it was, it was very connected to fear and yeah. Um, yeah. It was.
0: Yeah. It almost seems like, I don't know if this is fair to say, but it almost seems like that was, uh, hell was only talked about as an evangelistic tool, like almost like scaring yeah. people into making a profession of faith. Um, you know, I remember the Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames uh, drama, but also Judgment Houses. Did you guys mm. have Judgment Houses growing up? It's, it's, no, like, yeah. a, a it's like a a haunted house. house. Oh wow! But instead of people walking through a haunted house, you walk through different um, rooms. Basically, there that, that are dramas depicting hell, and so like the images are intentionally just played up to be as like terrifying, as gruesome as possible yeah. for the purpose of getting people so scared that they say, I'd never want to go to hell, and so I'm going to pray this prayer so I don't go to hell. Mm. And so it's, it's just an interesting—and again, do I think that um, people got saved from that? Yeah, sure. God can use anything to lead people to himself. But I do think that um, for most people, if you grew up in church around the same time that I did, when you think of hell— Um, you know, and rightly so, it's a terrifying prospect to fall into the judgment of God. But, but I think there's Mm -hmm. also some just mixed feelings about it based on just how it was presented in ways. Um, yeah. But how do you think most people in the secular world feel about the Christian doctrine of hell? And if they have a problem Mm -hmm. with it, why?
1: Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's, um, palatable to most of the secular world or even like culturally Christian world, I think we all, especially in the West and the United States of America, we have this like, um, you know, they're in a better place or there's really like, we don't, we don't really want to tread there mentally. Um, mm. We have a problem with that because we have, we have a problem with uh, self sovereignty um, and we can't picture a God that is um, willing to, to distance People in his creation from him because of their the consequences of their actions. Um, hmm. So that doesn't that doesn't sit well with the majority of 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 people who um, are living a godless life. I suppose.
0: Sure. So it seems like if you are growing up, not you know any any connection with church, or maybe you did grow up in church, but you've distanced yourself from it. The idea that there is a god that will judge people mm-hmm. through eternal separation or through eternal torment that just seems really unfair, that seems really antiquated, that seems really
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: backwards to some people.
1: Yeah, yeah, judgmental, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some scriptures that talk about hell, and as unpopular, I think, as this doctrine is and As uh, many have tried to kind of scrub it from the framework of Christianity, it's actually all through the scriptures. So we're going to talk a little about that, and then we're going to talk at length on four views that have historically um, been held by some within the church, and kind of look at those four views and um, just kind of talk about scriptures that support them or don't support them, and then... Um, hopefully somebody can come away with this with a more rounded and hopefully more biblically robust uh, understanding of this doctrine because this is a serious doctrine. I mean, we're talking about this today, not not kind of as a novelty, but I mean as as a as a real thing, right? I mean, the fact yeah. that like there are people who are under the judgment of God, and if they die without receiving Christ, that they're headed for judgment for eternity. That's a big deal. That's, that's Mm -hmm. a weighty conversation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We have to wrestle with this topic because if you believe the Bible to be the word of God, then, then you, you have to do something with the concept of hell because it is, it is a theme in scripture. It's not like a um, obsessive theme, I would say, um, Mm -hmm. because I would say that, that by and large scripture and even the teachings of Christ are obsessed with living the here and now and how to do that more so than what the afterlife will look like. But it is a reality. It is a biblical concept that you have to sort through, wrestle with. And so I think what we're going to try to do is present some some views, some historical views, some biblical views, and allow you, the listener, to kind of sort through that, talk to your pastor, study it out yourself, pray about it, and kind of kind of come to a resting place on that, knowing that Even some of the greatest historical theologians and biblical scholars, they have changed their position on, on what hell is and what hell isn't. So allow yourself that room to change as you learn more and as you study more, um, that it's important we do that.
0: Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, within that, and I'll just say one more thing before we hop in, I think there's a lot that has been shaped by tradition versus scripture. Mm -hmm. And so we'll see that as we kind of get into this and, um, yeah. So. All right, so what is what is hell? When the Bible talks about hell, what is it? Well, first and foremost, it's a, it's a place. It's a destination. Um, throughout history, especially church history, uh, theologians, and I wouldn't say necessarily scholars, but people have speculated maybe it's at the center of the earth. Maybe it's, you know, <laughs> you, you dig down deep enough and there's hell, right? But most likely, this is a metaphysical place. And hell is the logical and metaphysical outcome of the decision to reject God. So if we believe that the source of all things that is good and beautiful and true is God himself, when someone rejects God, ultimately, they are rejecting everything that is good and beautiful and true. Mm -hmm. And so like in this earth right now, there's beauty. And everybody gets a chance to experience that beauty, whether or not you know God. There is truth and there is goodness and everybody gets a chance to experience that. That's called common grace, right? But let's just say that God is removed completely. Then that means there's no common grace. So that means there's no truth. There's no beauty. There's no goodness. There's only suffering and pain and loneliness and darkness. Mm -hmm. And so... When the Bible talks in Matthew eight twelve about hell being a place of outer darkness, this is a really interesting concept because the Bible speaks of God as light and light physically, sure, but also light metaphysically in the sense that God is all things good, beautiful and true. So what hell is, is complete, unending and inescapable separation from God which is why the Bible describes it as a place of outer darkness. It's just the absence of God, which is the worst thing we could possibly ever imagine. Does
1: that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like a, a time period where we have to grapple with our own shame and the consequences of our own decisions. But yet the, the highest form of shame that someone can feel is to be exiled from the presence of God. Mm-hmm. So I think I think all views of hell and historic views of hell have that kind of in common of like there is there is a two two options basically there is a in the presence of God option because of your righteousness your obedience or or you know um, Christ's righteousness living in you mm-hmm. and then there is the other option which is estranged from His presence right. and so historically what fits within those two. That's, you know, people have debated for centuries on over that, those two options, but we can, you know, pretty much extract from the biblical text. Yeah. Those are, those are definitely two extremes that people will experience after death.
0: Yeah. So one is in the presence of God,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: which is complete unending and inescapable unity with God, right? When you're Mm -hmm. in his presence. And then one is separation from God. Yeah. Which is complete, unending, and inescapable separation from God. And so, if we believe that, again, God's the source of everything good, beautiful, pleasurable, uh, amazing, all that stuff, then absence of God from existence is the worst thing one could possibly imagine.
1: Mm-hmm. And you could see and experience that to a certain extent on a physical level. So, you sure. go place to places that are very godless. Um, it, it's like hell on earth, yeah, right? Like, mm-hmm that every man is doing what he sees is right in his own eyes and after his own pleasure and his own desires. And that's a scary place. That's a dangerous place. It's very unpredictable. It's, um, it's very unsafe and it's torturous to be there. You you need to get out of there, but then you go to places where, you know, um, people have the will of God written on their hearts. It's the complete opposite. It's like, you don't want to leave. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of, you know, in a very small way you can experience that here on a physical level.
0: Yeah, and, and it's been said that um, for Christians, this earth is the closest we will ever get to hell, and for people who reject Christ, this earth is the closest they will ever get to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, very, very interesting thought in that. H- hell is really the natural result of a moral agent choosing to separate from God, um, who is the source of all life, and go their own way. Um, so the Bible says there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end is death. The end is destruction. And so someone that says, I don't want God. I don't want to go where God is. I don't want God in my life. I want to do my thing, my own way. God honors that person's moral agency and they are allowed to go their own way and, separation from God in this life might seem like the better of the two options, right? Because you don't have any accountability. You can do whatever you want. But separation from God in the life to come for eternity is a terrifying prospect. Um, so, so much of what we read in the scriptures, especially in Revelation 19 and Matthew 25, this is where we get depictions of fire. And so like Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, Judgment Houses, all that stuff, like depictions of fire. Even we'll we'll talk about Dante here in a minute and uh, the Divine Comedy. Uh, So much of what comes to people's mind when they talk about hell is fire. And that's actually a biblical thing. That's a biblical um, imagery. Mm -hmm. But there is great symbolism to it. And all throughout the Bible, you see that fire is used as a symbol of the judgment of God. So even as far back as Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed with fire and sulfur. Mm-hmm. Um, we see in Second Kings, fire is sent from heaven to destroy Elijah's enemies. We see that the prophets in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, and Isaiah, chapter 30, they would see visions of fire coming from the throne of God as a symbol of his punishment of sin. And then, of course, Jesus talks about fire, the fire of judgment, and then Revelation talks about the lake of fire. Uh, And so this this is where we get this idea of fire. Now, the question is asked from biblical scholars, is this a physical, literal fire or is this fire symbolic of God's judgment? And the big question is maybe both. What do you think?
1: Is it a is it a physical fire or like a, a medic, metaphysical fire? You're saying.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the question, right? I mean, if, yeah. if hell is something that is experienced, you know, by a person, I would yeah. imagine that that person would experience real physical torment and pain. Yeah. So is that fire a symbol for God's judgment, mm-hmm. that someplace else, or is that fire? you know, some, symb- some, symb- I don't, you know, that's the question, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it ultimately doesn't
0: matter all that much. I would think because whatever is God's judgment is probably worse than real physical fire.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he's using, I think he's using physical, uh, frames of reference that we can relate to, to say that this is what hell will be like. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't, I would say that, you know, our souls obviously are, are non-physical. So, what we would experience in hell is going to be a non-physical as long with that. Cause you can't, as far as I know you can't take a physical and allow it to interact with the metaphysical. But, mm. um, yeah, I think, I think kind of like when we talked about with the flat earth thing, it's like he's using, you know, organs of our body or is using like ancient cosmology perhaps to try to convey something that we can actually relate to. Just like my dad saying, see that campfire, see those coals. Hell is 10 times hotter than that, you know?
0: Mm. Yeah. uh, Jesus in the gospel of Mark chapter nine, when he talks about hell, he uses the word Gehenna and Gehenna was an actual place. Um, Gabe, talk a little bit about that place, Gehenna, and why Jesus would have used Gehenna to describe hell.
1: Yeah. Gehenna is actually a, it's actually what most of Judaism uses to describe the concept of hell as well. It's, um, it's a transliteration of Gehinom, which is the valley of hinom It's a little valley. Well, I should say it's actually a really deep valley just to the east of the old city of Jerusalem. It's the it's the crevasse that separates the Mount of Olives from It's a
0: fancy word.
1: Yeah, it is, it is. What's the
0: difference between a crevice and a crevasse?
1: <laughs> what one is what, what shows when <laughs> your when your pants are sagging too low. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's funny. All right, keep going. Yeah. But, so you've got the Mount of Olives. And then if you work your way west, like you want to go from the Mount of Olives to, the, to Jerusalem, into Jerusalem, you have to go through Nom, which is the, what, what um, most scholars, when they look at Psalm 23, say it's the valley of the shadow of death. It gets about like three hours of sunlight every day. And the, um, you know the, uh, the Mount of Olives, just to kind of paint a picture, is the largest cemetery in the known world has, you know, no one really knows for sure. It's tens of thousands, several tens of thousands of people buried on, on Mount of Olives. That is kind of you know, it's kind of hanging over and shadowing over the valley of Hinom, Gehinom. And so as you walk through that valley, you've got the city of Jerusalem, and um, the in the Holy Temple on your on, you know, if you're heading south, you've got that on your right. And then you've got this massive um, graveyard on your left with tens of thousands of people buried in it. Hmm. So, in the middle there, in ancient times, especially in the Book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about how the people of Israel and even the Levites were bringing the firstborn sons of the Israelites um, up to uh, a a false god they would call Molech, and they would um, and and Molech was kind of like a hollow statue where they would uh they would build these fires in the belly of molech and get get molech to be glowing red and uh molech was kind of sitting down on like a throne and then he had his arms outstretched in front of him as if receiving like a child like you would pass a baby to someone they put their arms out and so the priest would walk up this ramp and meanwhile other priests would begin to bang on drums um and and kind of work up the crowd and then they would take this, this firstborn baby and lay it on the arms of Molech as it's glowing red hot. And they say the drums would drown out the cries of the baby and eventually the baby would you know burst in flames and fall into the belly of Molech. And so this was a common practice in, in ancient Israel in the book of Jeremiah, I believe chapter seven. And Jeremiah is rebuking Israel for doing that. But then later on, uh, it's believed that even after the destruction of Malek, that the city of Hinnom or the, the valley of Hino, Hinom, Ge became the the town dump, the landfill for the city of Jerusalem, where people would go and throw trash and light trash on fire. So if you can see picture, you know, tens of thousands of people's trash, you know, there'd be flies and maggots and wild dogs and you know uh, people digging through trash and um, fugitives, crazy people vultures flying around, you know, it'd be like this, this smelly, you know, have you ever like been through, especially like like a developing country and they're burning trash, you know, it's that smell. But that's, that's the picture that he's trying to paint for us. And that's, that is a, like, like using those physical, visible symbols of something that is deeper and metaphysical. And I think that's what Jesus is doing in in many of these places where he uses, uses Gehenna.
0: Yeah. And so that would have been familiar to, The people in Jerusalem at the time is this place of just Mm -hmm. filth and refuse and, you know, maggots and worms and probably trash is being burnt constantly, Mm -hmm. right? People are just throwing more stuff on there and it's just, yeah, just a a really, really just evil place because of the history of it as well. It's a place of death also because there's all the tombs around on the Mount of Olives. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um interestingly enough, Matthew 25:41 suggests that hell was originally not meant for people, but for the devil and his angels. Um, that's what Matthew 25:41 says it, it says this he will say to those on his left depart from me you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So it's this idea that hell is separation from God. And this is what Lucifer willingly chose as did those fallen angels and those who reject God essentially are choosing the same thing. And so God is granting to them what they have requested and casting them from his presence just as he cast Lucifer and the angels from his presence. Um, So we have sometimes in our minds, especially from like Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, uh, the Divine Comedy, um, you know, movies and cartoons and comedies and all these things. We have this picture of Satan ruling hell with a big pitchfork and chains and all this stuff. Well, the reality is Satan is going to be suffering with his demons in hell. He's not ruling hell. He's going to be judged in hell. Mm. And so it's important to remember that, that it's not – you know, God and Satan are kind of these two equal forces, and God allows Satan to you know rule over hell for eternity, while God's ruling over heaven for eternity. No, Satan is going to be judged as well. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah yeah, it sounds sounds wonderful,
0: <laughs> yeah, it does. And that honestly is is a very uh, good thing. you know that God is eventually he's he's judging evil. he's He's going to deal with Satan once and for all. And I love what C.S. Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce. And this is a very interesting one. And if you've ever heard me preach, you've probably heard me quote this. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this in The Great Divorce. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Mm -hmm. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is open. So it's this idea that hell is simply God granting to people what it is they've requested. They wanted separation and absence from him in this life. And so God delivers them over to separation and absence from him in eternity. Hmm. Yeah. So that's an interesting, that yeah, that's a, it's a very interesting idea. I think it also really, uh, you know, corrects these notions that we have in our minds of just kind of God is this, you know, horrible tyrant that just sort of, you know, capriciously sends people to hell and just, you know, it it actually shows us that, you know, someone has a conscious choice when it comes to that. So you talked a little bit about ancient Jewish understandings of hell. I mean, is it... Mm -hmm was it Gehenna? Is that how they understood? What What did an ancient Jew before Jesus came around believe that, you know, if you died and you were not a follower of God, you weren't a follower of Yahweh, where did the unrighteous go? Was it a place like Gehenna?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, if you were unrighteous, um, yeah. And you, you got to understand like Judaism has has evolved just like some sects of Christianity have evolved. It's, it's taken on concepts and and ideas and worldviews where it has traveled to in the world as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it seems, it, it. you know, many people don't realize this, but Judaism in historic Judaism does believe in hell, um, but they call it Gehinom. And it's the idea that when you die, the biological aspect of you decomposes into the ground, but then your nefesh, the thing that God breathed into you and animated the biological aspect of you, it's going to one or two places. It's going into um, the, the glory of God, like the Shekinah, they would call it, and where there is light and there is pleasure, you're in the presence of God, right? But the other place would be Gehinom, which is um, the idea of uh, refinement, cleansing, purification. And it's actually, um, at least in a lot of modern Jewish circles, and this ha- probably has its root back several hundred years at least, Um, it's the idea that, um, your soul, your nefesh lives in Gehinom for a year while it is being refined and punished to a certain extent where you are having to see your life replayed before your eyes. And then oddly enough, that nefesh is then put back into a body and recycled, so to speak, so that you can live and so, so there is like this limited, hmm. limited extent, limited belief in like reincarnation. If that makes this sense. is
0: this is modern Judaism, or is this
1: uh, modern and and an ancient? As far as I could tell, um, hmm. obviously these concepts develop over time and add more like right. layers over time. But I don't know if this is what the Judaism of Jesus's day believed. Um, you know, well, there...
0: that might have made sense. Like if you think of. Um... In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Lazarus dies and goes into Abraham's bosom, yeah. And the rich man dies and goes to hell, so Gehinom, right? Mm-hmm. And the rich man says he's trying to like go back, right? And Abraham says, "No, there is a fixed gap. You you can't go back."
1: Mm-hmm. Do you remember this? Yeah.
0: Yep. So do you think maybe Jesus was kind of correcting this idea in Luke's gospel, telling that story?
1: Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. And I, I think it could be possible that you know historic Judaism has borrowed some from the Catholic view of the afterlife, you know, namely like purgatory or vice versa. Um it's it's hard to say. There just there isn't a lot of Judaism is never really obsessed with the afterlife. Judaism is always obsessed with the physical life and becoming the, right. the resurrection of the dead. So there's, there's very little talk about what happens to your nefesh, your soul. Once the biological aspect of you goes away. Um, there's, there's some discussions of it in the Talmud and things like that, but yeah, by and large, that's, that's kind of the, the theme within Judaism, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that, nor does the, the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels really line up with that more mystical view of the afterlife. But it's, it's interesting nonetheless.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. I'm, I'm looking at Luke chapter 16. This parable Jesus told the rich man and Lazarus, it says the poor man was died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Mm-hmm. Um, some translations to Abraham's bosom. So this understanding of being gathered with the, the faithful, the Jew, Jewish people right? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: With the patriarchs in the presence of God. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, which that's a Greek word, Hades. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, but that would have been, you know, the New Testament's written in Greek, but using that word as a way to signify a place of eternal judgment. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And then on verse 26, Abraham says to the rich man, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm is fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Hmm. So I, I wonder, I mean, this is just a theory and this is, I haven't about this until you just said this. I wonder if that's what Jesus was referring to. Maybe this mystical yeah. idea of Judaism that believed that, you know, you're going to have a second chance after you die, that you can come back from yeah. eternal judgment to, to try again. You know,
1: this, this is ancient uh, folk tale. I thought was interesting that you can find within rabbinic literature. It says um, that in, in both heaven and hell, human beings sit at tables filled with the most wonderful of foods but they can't bend their elbows in hell. The people are perpetually starving themselves since they can't bring the food to their own mouths. Whereas in heaven, each, pe- each person feeds his neighbor. It's hmm. kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, just, that is. And I don't know how to fit fits in with this discussion, but I thought it was interesting. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't not read that because it's, it's kind of a cool concept of like hell is a place where people are just completely living for themselves and yeah. are completely worshiping themselves. Whereas heaven, it's like, it's those who are doing the will of the creator and serving other people.
0: Yeah. That's super interesting. When I was in Korea, um, it's interesting. every culture kind of has little proverbs about heaven and hell and things like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I was in Korea and uh, I didn't eat everything on my plate. And uh, all the people sitting at the table with me at the school I was working at started laughing and saying all this stuff in Korean. And I was like, uh, what are they saying? And one of the teachers says, oh, I forgot you, you don't speak Hangul. They're saying that you will have to go back and eat that in heaven. I was like, <laughs> what? They said, yeah, we believe that um, uh, all the things that you didn't eat in this life, like if you had stuff left over on your plate, that'll be waiting for you in heaven, that you'll get to eat all of it in heaven. And I was like, that doesn't sound like heaven because there's a lot of stuff I didn't eat because it tastes not taste good. So I'm going to have to go to heaven and eat my mom's tuna casserole. Man, that's going to be terrible. Mm-hmm. But, uh, anyway. All right, so let's look at some verses that kind of describe hell. We've already looked at some of them. We already looked at Matthew 25, 41, where Jesus says, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal eternal f- fire prepared for devil and his angels. Matthew 8, 12 says, The subjects of the kingdom will be thrown out into darkness. And then he uses this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1 talks about the wicked being punished with everlasting destruction and shut away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. Revelation 20 says the devil who deceived them was thrown into a lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They were tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's that imagery of fire in the lake of fire. You see that in revelation and then Matthew 25, 30 also talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when someone asks the question, what exactly is hell going to be like? Do we have dimensions of hell? Like the book of Revelation gives us dimensions of the new Jerusalem and dimensions of the temple and the dimensions of all these things. But we don't really have that in the Bible. We don't really have like the dimensions of hell or the descriptions of hell. Um, We have little vignettes and pieces and, and clues of kind of, here's what the suffering is going to be like. It's a place of horrible suffering and horrible torment. But the truth is we, we don't know the specifics of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would suggest that most of us that have a mindset of, you know, here's the specifics of what that looks like. That's not been formed by scripture. That's been formed by a 14th century poet by the name of Dante Allegri. And he wrote a poem called The Divine Comedy. And the first part of this poem is called Inferno, and it describes Dante's journey through hell. And this was highly, 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 highly influential of the Roman Catholic understanding and depiction of hell. Um, so much so that even after the Reformation, some of those understandings of hell and what it looked like and all that stuff were carried over into Protestant traditions. And then here we are today. Uh, but have you ever read this poem? I had to no, read it. For, I
1: no, I haven't. I haven't.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so Dante shows up. It's this. It's this poem, like the Divine Comedy. He's got different parts. The first part is Inferno. He shows up, and he is guided by the ancient Roman poet Virgil. Which, for those of you who don't know, Virgil is a pagan, right? But Pergil, uh, Pergil. Virgil, Virgil <laughs> is in purgatory. Say that ten times fast. <laughs> Virgil is in purgatory, and uh, it's because, according to Dante's belief, he was a virtuous man, but he was a pagan, so. A virtuous person that was a pagan that was unbaptized um, goes to purgatory. They don't go to hell. They go to purgatory. God purifies them, and then they can come in to paradise. But uh, Dante described hell as nine concentric circles of torment that were located within the earth. So that's kind of where that idea comes from, that hell's deep within the earth. This comes from Dante. And every circle of hell represented a gradual increase of wickedness. Hmm. So the first circle that uh, Dante saw was called limbo. And this is the Catholic belief in the edge of the boundary of hell. And so it's those who die in original sin, but they're not sentenced to the hell of the damned. So, you know, you, you didn't get baptized. You're not a Christian, but, you know, you, you're you a good person. So you're in limbo. You're you're kind of like in almost purgatory, but not quite, right?
1: Oh, so this is where we get the phrase, he's in limbo. Yeah. A place okay. of uncertainty and you don't know the future. Mm-hmm. hmm
0: and then each each circle of hell, according to Dante, is a worse and worse and worse and worse punishment. The ninth circle, according to Dante, are the worst sin and the worst torment, the worst torture anyone ever experiences in hell are, are for those who commit treachery or an act of betrayal. And some people think that Dante was <laughs> writing that because he'd been betrayed by people. And so he wanted to kind of take a, a stab at them like you're – you're going to burn in hell and it's going to be worse than anybody else because you betrayed me. Mm. Uh, But what's interesting is so much of what Dante wrote was influenced by Greek and Roman imagery, which is pagan mythology. Yeah. So if you just contrast Inferno, Dante's poem with uh, what you read in like Greek literature about Hades and the underworld and the river Styx and all that stuff, there's a huge crossover between the two.
1: Yeah, I was going to say in, in Plato's Republic, which is written three three hundred 375 BC, there's a section called The Myth of Ur, which goes into this guy named Ur, goes into the afterlife and comes back and describes Hades, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, But yeah, I, I, it seems from what I've read about The Myth of Ur and kind of a synopsis of it, it sounds very in line with that from from Greek mythology.
0: Yeah, and actually what's interesting is if you read Inferno, Dante like – meets figures that were heroes in Greek literature, like Aeneas from the Aeneid and, you know, obviously Virgil who wrote the Aeneid. And uh, they're like the good guys, right? (laughs) These are pagans that didn't worship the one true God, weren't Christians. But according to Dante, they somehow, you know, if they were in hell, they were in limbo, right? They were like not quite in, they were good Mm -hmm. virtuous people that, you know. So obviously that's not an accurate understanding. Of hell, It's not really a biblical understanding of hell, but that unfortunately has shaped most of how we view it, right? The picture of, you know, different rooms of torment with Satan walking around ruling and reigning and all that stuff. Um, what we do know, the one thing that Dante did get right is the Bible seems to suggest that there will be degrees of punishment in hell. Uh, because Jesus says in Matthew 10, when he's declaring judgment, on these towns that rejected him, he said, truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So as if to say presidents from this town are going to be judged harsher than even the presidents of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's kind of like this idea that, that God issues retribution based on the amount of evil that was committed. Uh, in Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable And he says that master, that servant who knew the master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Hmm. So it seems like what scripture is saying is that that some will have a greater capacity for suffering or some will actually bear a more serious measure of the wrath of God, everybody will suffer for sin, but some suffering will be worse than others because God is the righteous judge. And like any judge, a judge issues a sentence and that sentence is, um, according to the, the crime. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. 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 And the specifics on how it all plays out, you know, kind of more mysterious, but you know, that's, that's not the focus of our faith, nor should it be No, or a source of, it should be, it should not be a source of division within local churches or assemblies or, you know, Mm-mm. unfortunately, sometimes it, it becomes that.
0: Right. I mean, the idea is hell is going to be terrible and horrible and no one ever, 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 ever would want to go there. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. also that God is the one who decides what punishment is given to anyone that goes there. Yeah. And he's a righteous judge. Um, just for the sake of time, let's let's keep, let's keep going. Uh, so the answer is, you know, the question that's asked for a lot of people is, why would God send anyone to hell? Right? I thought the Bible said God is love. <laughs> I thought the Bible says God is a God of goodness, and God is a God that, you know, all that all that teaching about God so loved the world, all that stuff, why does that get thrown out the window when Christians are obsessed with this idea of God sending people to hell and roasting people in hell? Like, how does that work? Have you heard people ask that? Have you heard people wrestle with that?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, J.D. Greer wrote a blog on the Gospel Coalition, and he said this. I thought this was really interesting. He says, In one sense, God doesn't send anyone to hell we send ourselves. Hell is the culmination of telling God to get out. You keep telling God to leave you alone, and finally God says, okay. That's why the Bible describes it as darkness. Mm. God is light. His absence is darkness. On earth, we experience light and things like love, friendship, and the beauty of creation. These are all remnants of the light of God's presence, but when you tell God you don't want Him as Lord and center of your life, eventually you get your wish, and with God go all of His gifts. We have two options, live with God or live without God. If you say, I don't want God's authority, I would rather live for myself. That's hell. Hmm. What do you think about that quote?
1: Yeah, it's, it's in essence, it encapsulates, you know, you know, without, without going into a lot of specifics, it it really does encapsulate the concept of hell and and why people have to go there, um, that there's two sides to the, the coin. That there is a God who loves, there's a God who judges, and that's it's a very loving thing to do to, to be just, to be judging.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So God is described as in Scripture, and we know the character of God. You know, First John one five says, "God is light, and in God there is no darkness at all." So that means that God's holiness, God's perfection, and God's righteousness require that nothing tainted, dirty, or unholy can be in his presence. Mm -hmm. And so if someone has not received God's forgiveness and his imputed righteousness through the gift of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, they're tainted by sin. They're unholy and they can't be in his presence. They just can't. It's that picture of like the priest that would go into the Holy of Holies and there would be impurities that they would carry with them because they hadn't really clean themselves or cleanse themselves. And so they would be struck down in the presence of God, right? Because they yeah. sin cannot exist in the presence of God. So if we are still living in sin, we, we can't be in God's presence unless that sin has been dealt with. Um, God's eternality, God's immutability. That means he doesn't change and God's infinity. That means he's eternal. Uh, because all sin is, is really a violation of God's righteous decree, that's what it is. God is the one that decrees what is the punishment for that. And he also decrees that that punishment is eternal. Um, in Matthew 25 46, Jesus says that these will go away into eternal punishment. So somebody says, well, that, that doesn't, that's not fair, right? You, somebody's going to punish someone for eternity. Well, God is the one in his eternality that sets the sentence and the sentence he has set is eternal and the righteous into eternal life. Um, do you think that's what a lot of people struggle with? Just like, how, how does mm-hmm. that make sense? I was, you know, that doesn't yeah. seem fair.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to fit that into, you know, this this concept of like, okay, well, They've been there for a year. Maybe that's long enough, or they've been there for two years. Like how right. long does, why does someone have to spend eternity in this punishment alongside some of the wicked, most wicked people in the world? Yeah. that's Yeah, that's definitely something very hard to fit into our worldview and our, our concept of, of justice, I guess.
0: Yeah. I think an answer to that would be, I mean, honestly, this is one that we don't like as Westerners, but because God is the one that sets the sentence, not us. Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes along with the next understanding of hell, that God is the perfect judge. Um, Really, I don't think we struggle as much with God sending certain people to hell. Mm -hmm. So the most secular and the most postmodern people you talk to when you ask them about, okay, where is Adolf Hitler? Where is Jeffrey Dahmer? Where is Joseph Stalin? They'll tell you they're in hell. I think what we struggle with is the fact that the scripture seem to teach that people go to hell on the basis of God's standard, not our standard. Yeah. And deep down, we think we would make a better judge than God. Hmm. Th- that if we were the ones that got to decide who goes and who doesn't go, then we would do a better job at it. But really that just shows our own hmm. sinfulness, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah. our own arrogance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And the reason that God sends people to hell is that a just judge must always convict the person who has been found guilty. So if God is a perfect judge and God is a God of justice, if he didn't pursue justice for a crime, he wouldn't be a just judge. So if we imagine the alternative, that means God doesn't send anyone to hell ever. So Hitler gets off scot-free. Every bit of evil that's done on the earth, all the pedophiles and the sex traffickers and the mass murderers, all those people, they get off scot-free. They die and they go into the presence of God and they get eternal reward because God doesn't ever send people to hell. Would you want to worship a God like that?
1: <laughs> no, no. I, I want to I worship and I do worship a God who, who judges sin, who judges unrighteousness and injustice in the world. Yeah. And punishes it, yeah.
0: But with that, I think the hard part is we have to also acknowledge that that means God is going to judge our sin
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. unless our sin is atoned for by the sacrifice of Jesus.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword. It is.
0: Hey, so let's take like 10, 15 minutes. I know we're kind of going over because this is a huge topic, but let's talk about the four historic views of hell that uh, have been held by many in the church. So... First historic view of hell is the one held by most Christians, I would say. So most Roman Catholics, this is the official stance of the Roman Catholic Church, most Protestants and most Evangelicals, and that is the view that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. So that's the first view, eternal conscious torment. And that is that hell is a place of final separation. So the irrevocable separation of the wicked from the righteous and from the presence of God's mercy. Hell is an unending experience that the punishments of hell will be consciously experienced forever. They won't stop. And someone will consciously experience that torment for all eternity. And then hell is a place of just retribution. It's it's not a means of redemption or renewal. And, and we'll look at some views that teach that. Uh, but this view you see in the scriptures, uh, just we'll look at a couple of these. Isaiah 66 talks about... Uh, Their worms shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. This is the people who are rebels against God. That's Isaiah 66. Daniel 12 talks about how some will rise to shame and to everlasting torment. So this idea that the torment is, uh, excuse me, everlasting contempt, that the contempt is everlasting. Matthew 18 talks about the eternal fire. Jude 7 talks about eternal fire. And then Revelation 20 says that the beast and the false prophet are tormented day and night forever and ever in the lake of fire. And anyone's name not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the first view, eternal conscious torment. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and this is what, you know, is is typical and very common within you know evangelical Christian circles.
0: Right. And this would be, like I said, what most Christians when they view hell— Mm-hmm. They would lean towards that. And and obviously there's a, a lot of biblical you know support for that view. Uh, the second view is terminal punishment, or some people call this conditional immortality. And uh, this is now held by most Seventh-day Adventists. This is held by some in the Eastern Orthodox Church. This is held by some in the Anglican Church. So there's a theologian by the name of John Stott. He was an... Uh, evangelical Anglican. Um, This tends to be right now kind of a minority view in evangelicalism, but there are some evangelicals that hold to this view. Uh, Surprisingly, in the the Reformation, there were several that held to this view. This is Luther, Tyndall, and Wycliffe. um, They held to this view. And and this is what this view teaches, that uh, all unsaved human beings and Satan himself will be totally destroyed in an act of judgment from God. So... Eventually, and how long that judgment will last—that's up to God. These people will be totally destroyed so much that their consciousness will be completely extinguished, rather than them suffering eternal torment in hell. Does that make
1: sense? Yeah, yeah. Is this—is this also what we would call um, annihilationism?
0: Annihilationism. Yeah.
1: Annihilationism. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, and so there's a lot of research in this yesterday. I read an essay yesterday about this. There's a lot of variation between this view. So like um, Seventh-day Adventist and Jehovah's Witness teach annihilationism as in like if someone dies that is wicked, they basically die and never wake up. Hmm. And so that's one extreme of it. Like basically they just don't, you know, they don't have eternal life. But then others, like in the Eastern Orthodox Church and in the Anglican Church and the Adventist Church, um, and the Adventist Church is kind of split down the middle, believe, no, there is an actual hell. Like, someone will literally go to hell, but that hell is not eternal. Hmm. Like, God is the one that decides how long it lasts, and God eventually destroys both their soul and their body in hell. Like Jesus said, if you're not the one who can uh, destroy the body. Body, but rather feel, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Um, and so the whole point of conditional immortality is this idea that a human soul is not immortal unless God gives it eternal life. Hmm. So we live forever on the condition that we receive resurrection life from God. Now, does that correspond with the Hebrew understanding of nefesh? Do they teach the nefesh as eternal, or is that?
1: Do you know? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know if the nefesh is, is you know, e- eternal, but I think I think it is. I think that it's like this eternal divine aspect of every human. But um, yeah. obviously, different different sects of Judaism might might disagree on that. But yeah,
0: sure. So the scriptural support that people who believe in conditional immortality or terminal punishment hold to is a lot of the Psalms like Psalm one, Psalm 37, Psalm 92 talk about the ungodly and the wicked, uh, being destroyed and being destroyed forever. And the ungodly shall perish. The wicked shall perish. The wicked will be destroyed forever. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So it's not just make them suffer for eternity, but just totally destroy them. Um, Even in John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish. So that word in the Greek is the word destroy. Uh, In Philippians 3.19, it talks about the people whose God is their belly. Their end is destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 talks about everlasting destruction. Hebrews 10 talks about destruction. James 4.12 talks about God being the one who is able to save and destroy. And then Revelation 20.14 calls it the second death and so I think the the part of it that people wrestle with is you say, well, wait a second, the Bible says that hell is eternal, right? It's eternal death. And so those who hold to this view say, no, we agree, it's eternal. But what they believe about eternal is that doesn't mean existing forever. It just means that the event or the action is without end. So it's permanent.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
0: eternal death means you're you're dead forever and you can never come back from that, or you're destroyed forever and you can never come back from that. It's like an everlasting implication more or less. Mm. So that's, that's an interesting view. I don't know exactly how I feel about that, but that, that, that is a, it's an interesting one. So makes sense so far. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever met anybody that has that view? Conditional immortality or terminal punishment?
1: Yeah, I have. Um, yeah, there's actually a a teacher I really respect that, um, holds that view that, yeah, uh, that you, you're hell is the source of like annihilation basically of your soul. It's not in the place of eternal torment. Um, you know, I don't know where I'm at on it. Um, I could, I see, I see scriptural backing for it, but I also see scriptural backing for like, you know, the, the eternal component of hell. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's a really good book that I have been reading, and uh, it's called Four Views on Hell. I'll hold it up to the screen so Gabe can see it. Nobody else can see it because you're listening <laughs> I to this. see but it. Yeah. You see it, yeah. So it's basically four essays from people who hold to these views, and the guy who wrote the essay on terminal punishment or conditional mortality is a guy named John G. Stackhouse Jr. Uh, so basically what this view is is people write, an essay supporting their view. And then the other three people who hold a different view, write an essay as a counter response to it. Hmm. And so, uh, really, really interesting. Um, I got a chance to kind of read his essay on it and he makes some interesting points, but again, I think the most conservative and literal reading of scripture would lean more towards eternal conscious torment, but, um, Yeah. Uh, The last two views, the, f- the third view is the view of uni- universal reconciliation, also called universalism. So this is held by the Unitarian Church, the Universalist Church. This is what you see in most progressive or liberal theology. So Episcopal, Lutheran, some Presbyterian Methodist churches lean towards us. And, and the view is this, that in the end, God will reconcile all people to himself through Christ.
1: So this is like the the bedrock of like Rob Rob Bell's book, yeah. Love Wins, right? Yeah. That eventually love will win out. God will get his way. That's right. To be on right.
0: Way. That God will reconcile all people to himself through Christ. That's essentially what they say. And the doctrine that they hold to is that all sinful and alienated human souls because of divine love and mercy will ultimately be reconciled to God. And it's that. Jesus constituted the mechanism that provides redemption for all humanity and atonement for sins. So when you start getting into the waters of this, it's a lot less scripture that's used to support and a lot more like philosophy that's used to support it. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, how could God ever do that? That kind of thing. Um, What's interesting is not everybody who holds to this view teaches that hell doesn't exist. Uh, Many people teach that hell doesn't exist. But some say, well, if hell does exist, it's not permanent, and it's primarily for restorative purposes. It's not for retribution. Mm-hmm. So then people get into the territory of post mortem salvation, kind of what you talked about—the the Jewish understanding of somebody dies, mm-hmm. and they suffer for a little bit until they kind of wise up and go, "Man, I don't, I don't want to be here." And then God lets them in. Yeah. Um. So again, like there's not a whole lot of scriptures to support this. This is just kind of for some people what they hope to be true. So like Revelation 20 is never really talked about like, you know, that this this is a, the second death. This is the lake of fire. This is all for eternity that somebody goes to a place of judgment and they can't come back from it. Um, Those verses are never really talked about. But what is talked about is... Colossians 1 that says God was pleased through him, that's Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. So they say, okay, so Jesus reconciles to himself everything, even those who rejected him in this life. Uh, 1 John 2, two is used. Christ is the atoning sacrifice for all our sins, but not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 talks about that God desires all people to be saved. And so this is where Rob Bell in that book, Love Wins, kind of played fast and loose. He goes, how how could God desire something and that not come into being? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Which that's playing fast and loose with that scripture. That's not really what that scripture means. But, um, And then Hebrews two nine says, the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. They're like, okay, everyone means everyone, right? So this, I think this view is gaining a lot of traction. I know in 2010, when that book Love Wins came out by Rob Bell, a lot of people went bananas over this and thought, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, this is the newest, greatest, latest heresy. But this has been around for a long time. Yeah. So, yeah, um, and this is,
1: this is probably the most, uh, with, with, some, with some different twists and things, this is probably, um, fits in line with the ancient Jewish understanding. Not that that makes it right or true. Right. But this is very similar to the, the concept of, um, you know, like that all Jews will eventually be perfected and their their souls will be perfected and they'll be able to to walk in obedience to all the commandments. It's kind of the essence, you know, it, you, as many times as it takes, there's their nefesh to kind of recycle through Gehinom and then be put back into a body. It's like they get these chances over and over and over and eventually they'll get it right.
0: Right. So that's more of a... Uh... I would say almost the syncretism of kind of
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know Eastern Eastern religion with that. I, I would say that mm-hmm. most people yeah. I talk to that hold to that view, which I've met quite a bit, I hold to universal reconciliation, for them it's like just it's what they hope to be true. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea of well, I want to believe in a God that is love. And a God that is love, according to my view, would would do this.
1: Yeah, according to my definition of the love. Yeah.
0: And so I think that's the, that's where I would say this is kind of a dangerous view because you're basically, you're creating a God that looks like you and would do what you would do Mm -hmm. instead of what the Bible says about God. And that's God being a God of justice and a God of justice, you know, deals with sin and he deals with it based on his version of what justice is, not based on your version of what you tell him he's allowed to do with that. So. Yeah, so that's that's the third view, universal reconciliation. Then the fourth view and the last is the view of purgatory. So you've mentioned in rabbinical Judaism, this is probably where that came from, this mm-hmm. source, kind of an after-death purification. But mainly the Roman Catholic Church holds this. Some people in the Eastern Orthodox and the Oriental Orthodox Church hold to this. But it's basically the idea of an intermediate state after someone's physical death for the purpose of purification by God. So this idea of you have salvation, but you've not been sanctified or purified. So you can't stand in the presence of the Lord if you've not been sanctified or purified. So what do you need? Well, you need to go through this process of purification Mm -hmm. in a place called purgatory so that you may achieve holiness necessary to enter the joys of heaven. So, To many Catholics, purgatory is basically a place where lapsed Catholics go, or nominal Christians go, or uh, virtuous pagans go, right? They, They were good people in this life, but they were unbaptized. They didn't trust in Jesus, and so, well, God can't send them to hell. He's got to send them to purgatory first. So the official... Statement of the Catholic Church is those who die in God's friendship assured of their eternal salvation but still need purification go to purgatory. Hmm. But where it gets kind of uh, squirrely is how someone gets out of purgatory. And the teaching basically is because of the communion of saints, because when we take communion, we are communing with other believers, the faithful who are still pilgrims on earth are able to help the souls in purgatory by offering prayers and suffrage for them, especially in the Eucharistic sacrifice. So mm. they can also help by almsgiving indulgences and in the work of penance. So we here on earth can help those who are in purgatory according to the Catholic teaching.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like we said, this is, this is like, a component of the rabbinic Jewish view of the afterlife. Like we talked about how it's kind of synchronized a little bit with maybe even some of the more Eastern, like Zoroastrian kind of concepts as mm-hmm. well. Which,
0: when the Jews were in exile in Babylon, probably mm-hmm. would have an influence on a lot of their thought. Yeah,
1: yeah, a lot of their theology may have been. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the scriptural
0: support for purgatory is not very strong. The, there's only two verses that most Catholics will use to support it, and the first is actually not in our Bible. It's an apocryphal book called Second Maccabees, and Second Maccabees talks about um, basically Jews making an offering and a sacrifice for the sins of the dead. So those who had fallen asleep in godliness would have great grace laid upon them. That's 2 Maccabees 12, 45, basically is a way to say that somebody dies and they were part of the the family of God. If you're righteous here on earth, you can atone for it. You can get them into heaven if they're in purgatory. And then other Catholics, and I've never heard this before until I, I was reading an essay about this yesterday, 1 Corinthians 3, where it talks about the day of judgment, where We stand before the Bema Seat of Christ and our works are judged within the fire. Many Catholics think this is describing purgatory, Hmm. that our works are tested. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Um, I would say that's a misunderstanding of that text. That's not describing purgatory. That's describing the day of judgment that we'll stand before God as Christians. But nevertheless, that's how many people kind of get there. So, Gabe, which of these four views seems to have the most biblical support? Which one of these do you feel like
1: I'm is- scared you're going to ask that? <laughs> um, I'm I'm somewhere in between uh, uh, terminal punishment and uh, the first one, um, the eternal eternal conscious torment. Yeah, eternal conscious torment. Yeah, I'm I'm somewhere in yeah. between the two. I, I mean, in terms of like scriptural backing. I kind of see that, but you know, like I said, this is, this is such a deep and and difficult topic to grapple with because, because the Bible's lack of explicit detail and description of the afterlife, we have to deduce that our faith should be way more focused on the here and the now and the coming kingdom than it is what happens to like, what is hell like? Um, we can all, you know, there, there are some definitely some common themes that we can all agree on with this. The Bible is definitely supported that there's, there is a place you go to that can be a place of punishment. Um, who goes there, what it's like, the Bible isn't ex- exactly explicit on that or how well, long it lasts, but yeah. you know, there's, there's, there's some verses that you can pull out and you can back up all four of these positions. Some are weaker than others, but yeah, I'm probably somewhere in between the first two.
0: Yeah. So I would say I agree with you on that to a certain extent, but I'm going to push back on you a little bit. I'm I allowed to do
1: mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Absolutely. So please,
0: I would say that we do need to have in mind God's salvation from his judgment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that should drive our work here and now. Right. Yeah. But it's one of those things where, you know, it's like the old hymn says, "Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Like mm-hmm. when we preach on God's judgment, we preach on it in a very serious way. Again, mm-hmm. I think what you're saying is we don't get caught up in the details, right? The dimensions of hell and how many rooms there are, and you know yeah. what high ranking demons are, you know, ruling over which rooms in hell. That stuff is goofiness and silliness, and that's not in the Bible, right? But the Bible does teach hell is eternal. Mm -hmm. the Bible does teach that the ones who go there are the ones who die in their sins without being atoned for by the blood of Jesus. Yeah. And the Bible teaches that we can be rescued and saved from God's judgment by receiving the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf.
1: Yeah. I have a a kind of a bit of a story like, and yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, There's a friend of mine who says that when his dad would come home from work every day, he would take his belt and he would, remove it really quickly from his belt loops and he hear the little popping sound you know <laughs> is his belt and he would all he would call I all the kids down. <laughs> yeah, he would call the kids down and he would have his belt in his hand and he would say, Here's what we're doing. These are who who completed all their chores, you know, all this stuff. And he would take the belt and he would hang it on his chair where he sits at the dining room table. And then you know, so the rest of the, the rest of the afternoon, the evening, as the dad is there, you know, catching up with his family for the day or eating dinner or, you know, just around the house, everyone knew that that belt was hanging on that chair. Why? Because that belt was the source of punishment. But this friend of mine had a a good relationship with his father. And so he started the relationship, relationship off of a basis of fear that that belt, it, it could hurt me really badly. But at the same time, He knew that through uh, his realization of love for his dad and his dad's love for him, that there are, he he learned the boundaries basically. And he realized, oh, as, as long as I'm doing the right thing, I don't have to fear that belt, Hmm. but that belt is definitely there. And that's, that is a source of motivation for me to do the right thing. But eventually over time, that motivation morphs and kind of evolves from a a, a motivation of fear to a motivation of love. And I think that's how it's been in my faith, is like, yeah, I heaven's gates, hell's flames, that scared the hell out of me. You know, that, that was terrible. <laughs> Literally, yeah. But now I love God so much and I love the fact that He loves me and cares for me and provides for me. Yeah. That hell is it's on my mind, it's there, but it's not the main motivator in and me being faithful to the, the the creator of the universe. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think when we understand the what the Bible is saying about hell and the horrors of hell, right? That should produce in us like a worship and gratitude for the sacrifice of Jesus. Yeah. That Jesus endured the horrors of hell on the cross. Mm -hmm. You know, the apostles creed even said that he descended into darkness. Like Jesus took on the hell of suffering on the cross. Like he did that for me. So I don't have to because of what Jesus did for me. So when I get that, it produces in me this like amazing gratitude to go, man, I've been saved from so much. Yeah. And and an awareness of the penalty of my sin and a humility that that's what I deserve, but that's not what I got because God showed me mercy. And then a desire in me to see people saved from God's judgment. And I go, man, I really want others to experience the love and the mercy and the grace that God has shown me and it really, I think, is a motivating factor for me to be on my knees praying for my loved ones that may have never experienced that mercy or that just laugh about it, right? That laugh about God's mm-hmm. judgment, and make jokes about hell and, you know, I'm going to go to hell when I die. Ha, 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 you know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Why would yeah. we ever joke about that? Like, that's not, like, that's a real thing.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, closing up, do you think any of these views are, are theologically dangerous for a Christian to believe
1: Hmm. uh the universalism i think is it um it diminishes the concept of of God's judgmental aspects his yeah the idea that he will punish sin I, I think i think that when we get into those waters and we diminish that, i think that that can create in us a sense of like lackadaisical, i can live how i want sure um and i, I think that that's it it removes the component of fear i guess. And that component of fear is, is important.
0: Well, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. Because if you don't fear the Lord, then, I mean, what's the what's the point of any of this, right? <laughs> if yeah. God doesn't judge anybody and there's no ultimate accountability to anyone for how we live, then, you know, yep. God becomes very weak and he, he becomes a girly man. <laughs> according absolutely. to Arnold, the gospel according to
1: Arnold. <laughs> oh, gosh. This is, this is a deep topic. I mean, we, we, this is, made man. this this episode is probably 50% longer than our past ones, but if you listen this far, um, pick a, pick a position, um, be, be ready to defend it, be able to defend it and back it up, study, study through it, wrestle with it. It's important that we continually think critically about components of our faith and yeah. be able to defend them.
0: And I will say this to anybody listening to this, you have to, you have to any believer in Jesus has to wrestle with this teaching.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It has to, you you can't just scrub those texts away from your Bible and just Mm -hmm. go, "Eh, okay, no, you have to wrestle with the reality of what the scripture is saying, that there is eternal judgment for those who reject Christ. And you got to wrestle with it. And you got to come to a place where that shapes you and it shapes how you live. It shapes how you witness. It shapes how you pray for people. It shapes how, you know, what the mission of the church is, Right. And I would say that the reason a lot of people don't get serious about the mission of loving people and telling people about Jesus, because they really, they believe in it, but they really don't believe in it because they've never wrestled with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know what yeah. I think we should do since we've yeah. done a episode about hell, we should probably do an episode about heaven.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: This is okay. totally off the cuff. I've not talked to Gabe about this before, but if we're going to do an episode on hell, we probably need an episode on heaven. So
1: just yeah, that maybe when there. you get back from your, uh, your trip
0: maybe when i get back from my trip yes all right good friend anything else to add
1: no thank you guys for listening this far
0: yes i'm really impressed that people have made it an hour 20 <laughs> something minutes into it so thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you guys next time Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com.